Hello and welcome to Deprogram with Carrie Smith. This is a new channel. If you found your way here through the algorithm, just please hit like and subscribe. I am very excited. Uh, today I'm going to be speaking with a woman I got to talk to recently on her channel. We had a great conversation and now I get to turn the tables and interview her. Um, please welcome Deb Philman. Deb is the host of The Reason We Learn. Um, a podcast that you can find on YouTube or Locals or Substack. She is a parent advocate and a commentator on education freedom. Please welcome Deb. Hello, Deb. Hello. Can you hear that dog? I can. Yes. <laughs> I'll just leave it in. Let's just That's leave it fine. in. <laughs> How fine. are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing doing a lot better, uh, you know, since having COVID. <laughs> I'm all better now. Fine. Oh. Finally. Yes, survived. That's right. I'm still here. I survived the winter of math death. The winter of death. Yes, I thought that was a strange Christmas uh, greeting from the White yes. House. Merry Christmas. You're gonna die. <laughs> right. Can you tell those people, of you who are not vaccinated, which is me? <laughs> can you tell people just where they can find you online and a little bit about what it is that you do on your channel? Okay. So. Um, Right now, I have two channels that are sort of sub subscriber based. I have a locals community at the reason we learn.locals.com and a substack that I just started a couple weeks ago called the reason we learn.substack.com. What I'm doing is the audio versions of my podcast and my articles that I'll be writing are on the substack. The locals is a place where I actually get my hands dirty and I help people who are looking for alternatives to traditional institutional forms of education, whether it's public or private. I have resources for people looking to leave the schools and possibly homeschool or put together a micro school. I do two live shows for subscribers. They're a week, one about homeschooling, one about just education in general for parents to learn more about it. And it's a place where members of the community can also share questions and ask for small research projects. And I do have a weekly Zoom call for those folks. Um, I, ha I maintain a YouTube channel where you can see all of my videos and I have um, different playlists for parents because my number one goal with all of my platforms is to educate and empower parents to take charge of their children's education and a little bit, you know, adjacent to that kind of secondarily to empower educators, teachers who are looking around at what's going on in education today in America and saying, I was born to be a teacher. I love being a teacher. I want to continue teaching, but not like that. I don't, I don't want to do what they're doing. And what do I do? How do I find the people? How do I continue to be engaged in my craft? So I'm putting together content for them as well. The overarching goal though, isn't to be just, oh my God, look at that. I want people to understand what's going on and you know why I think it's bad, but I also want them to look towards the future and build something new. I really feel that's the direction we should go with reform. So I love, I love the fact that you're so focused because there's commentators. Yeah. Who kind of, um, everybody, you know, people have different things they're focused on. Maybe it's like ideology entertainment or, um, in the political sphere. And you are really doing a service because you're talking about things that everyone with kids is, if they're awake to what's going on in the world, they're dealing with this right, right now. And, right like you said, I think it's not just about, there's a lot of people now who, who fully understand and comprehend what's happening and they're looking for the next steps. Like, how do I 
deal with this and trying to raise kids and right. and make sure they have a good education and they're not getting this indoctrination. How how did you start doing this? What made prompted you to start a channel and start talking about this? That's a really good question. Um because I certainly didn't, you know, ever see myself doing this ever. Um I think what happened is that way back when I first started educating my own kids and I was homeschooling. I always knew I wanted to homeschool. I went to graduate school for education. I actually have a master's and I didn't like what they were teaching me back in, you know, the late eighties. They were already pushing into this Marxist idea, ideological stuff and taking teaching from a knowledge, you know, transition and, and critical thinking, you know, uh, teaching approach to a political lens. Like everything is political. You need to be political in the classroom. And I, I didn't like that at all. I thought I could get away with it once I was in the classroom, like not doing it and found very quickly that that wasn't an option. Even back in 1990, 1991, mm -hmm. it was just not allowed. You were supposed to follow the current zeitgeist. So this has been a long time coming. So I made the decision then to homeschool, which I did until unfortunately, sadly, my kid's dad and I split and they had to go into the public school. So I started more vigilant than most people when my children went into public school. That would be in about 2012. And, you know, I was already a little in my garden because I was an educator. I knew what to look for. I kind of like knew what rocks to turn over and things. And I started getting increasingly alarmed. I tried locally to raise alarm with other parents that I knew and so forth. And I got hard pushback. I was called, you know, everything from racist to conspiracy theorist. Even when I just talked about the specific ideological um, bent of the curriculum and I felt all alone, but I still had, you know, I wasn't completely alone when I would go to the internet. So for example, locally, I felt like I'm all on my own. Nobody's listening to me. Um, I couldn't even get another person to go and talk to school administrators or the charter school board where my kids were in a charter school. I moved them to a charter school hoping for better and it got worse. Wow. And so what I would do is I just go to my Instagram periodically and I would just kind of rant. I mean, not like cursing rant, but I would just say things that were summing up my feelings about what was going on. And I started getting a lot of good feedback from people who had felt like they were alone. Yes, that's what happens, right? Live, right? So for, at first it was me sort of shouting into the hurricane, like, you know, I can't take it anymore. I need to, I need to express myself because I, maybe someone will listen, right? And I started getting more and more people saying more and more and more. And I realized, well, Instagram's not a great, it's not working for me to have these long form things I want to say. Plus I wanted to get a little bit more um, thoughtful about it. Once I started realizing there's an audience out there, there are people who want to know more and they want to know it from someone who has kind of a little bit inside scoop, you know, um, on the parenting side, but also, you know, like kind of homeschool parenting and school side. I think people felt like that was a pretty good well-rounded sense of experience to, to talk about the topic. So I started making videos with absolutely no hope that I would get more than like, I don't know, a dozen people to watch or something, you know, just like the Instagram ones. I was like, well, I'll put it out there because it's a great outlet for me. It helps me hone my own understanding of what's going on. And it made me feel like I was doing something. I made a promise to myself back when I was a teenager and first started learning about in depth about the Holocaust and about you know, all the different kinds of totalitarian regimes. The one question that dogged me was, why didn't anyone say anything? Why didn't anyone do anything? Why were people going along with this? And even leaving aside that they didn't have bills of rights and things like we do for freedom of speech, they didn't even use what they had. So 
I even then, like 13 years old, I'm like, if this, if I ever see things getting really bad, I'm gonna speak up. I'm not gonna be one of those people in the end who said I should have said something. I didn't want regret. So I thought to myself, you know, I might be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong. And in fact, many people I talked to said that would never happen here. Deb, First Amendment, this and that, the Constitution won't happen. I said, I want to believe you, but I'm already seeing things. This is way before COVID. I'm already seeing things and I'm getting really nervous. I saw what happened with George Floyd and how everybody was like mob to believe one thing. And one of my first videos was like, I'm very concerned, but we're going to teach our kids about this event. Is it going to be the facts so they can dispassionately evaluate what went on and think for themselves? Or is it going to be the CNN version of what happened for clicks and you know views? And unfortunately, it was the latter. And that's when I just got super laser beam focused, even with my videos. And I started diving into reading more and more about why it was this way. Like I saw what it was and that it was not good for kids. That was very obvious to me as an educator and as a parent, but why was it this way? I had to do digging. I had to learn like any, anybody else. And I just kept sharing my own learning as I learned it. So I would learn something, James Lindsay, Chris Roof, whatever. And I'd be like, all right, they're doing a great job on their platforms, translating it their way, right? And putting into journalism or putting it into great long philosophical discourses. My audience is me. You know what I mean? Like my audience is people like me. They're average moms and dads and grandparents and teachers and taxpayers who are just like, here's my taxes. What the heck are you teaching these kids? That person at the Chick-fil-A couldn't make change, you know? So my audience is us. And I felt like I'm able with my academic background to take the stuff the other people are saying and with the credibility of having been a teacher to even take the journalistic side so people can't just go, that's a narrative. That's a that's the right-wing narrative. And I'm like, I, I'm a teacher and I can tell you it's not. It's true, right? So and I kind of pulled it together and I've just been going ever since. And I got very lucky and I was sort of seen by a few people who had lots of followers. And then I woke up one morning and it was like thousand people, you know, and, and it just kept going. And believe it or not, Somebody suggested I re I react to Tom McDonald videos, and I never heard of him. I love Tom McDonald. Right, so I've never <laughs> heard of him. I'm like, you know, in my 50s, and I'm a mom, and I don't listen to this kind of stuff. So I'm, and my kids make fun of me how like woefully ignorant I am about music in general. And so somebody said you should do this. I think you would. It would. It'd be really interesting to have your perspective. He's commenting on culture and the culture wars and stuff, and. I chose some that I felt were appropriate for my channel that had specifically to do with the culture issues and even education. And of course, you know, that got a lot more people's eyes on my content, but I'm very happy to say they stayed. Mm -hmm. They wanted that. There's, there are people who want to un better understand why is it like this and what's going on? Yeah. So that's how I got started. So you, um, you, you said something at the beginning about how you think we need to build something new. And as you said, you're, you know, about the public schools and you also know about charter schools and you're an advocate for homeschooling. Can, can you explain like where it is that you think if we're thinking and if we're trying to be stay positive about where things are headed, even while there's all of this woke ideology infiltrating the education system, right. what is that new thing? What do you see coming down the road possibly? What does that look like? Well, I think it's going to mirror what's happening in our society in general, that we're moving more towards sort of a more entrepreneurial approach. You now have, I think it's more than 50% of Americans at this point who are working 
in some capacity on their own, you know, like either running a small business or being entrepreneurial in some way, um, independent contractors, things like that. Part of it, I think, um, is the nature of employment has become such that people realize there is no set security in working for a company and people and even the insurance and all the benefits were kind of winnowing out, you know, so I think people have started realizing like, if I really want to be free to do what I want to do, I need to own it. And even when you work for another company, I think people are taking on a more entrepreneurial mindset of this is my career. This is my job. It's not it, for a long time now. It's been perfectly fine to switch jobs every couple of years. And so I think people in general are becoming more aware that if they want to be masters of their own destiny, they're going to have to take that in hand. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that, there are people who are even getting more tolerant of like, I'll live in a tiny house. I'll live in a I'll live in a in a motor home. I'll live in a cottage. I have a friend who does van life. You can live right? in a van. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you have these things that are becoming what, you know, you know, homesteading, things like that. Things that used to be, it's kind of like a new traditionalism or new modernism. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like we're going back to get things from the past that maybe a few years ago would have been thought of as like, I wouldn't do that. And now people are sick of like subdivision, like whatever. And they're like, I want to be free. I want to travel more. I want to do things. And when you add to that the sort of more heavy-handed nature of regulations and government and everything that's been happening and whatever, that I think people are realizing, like, if I if I want to maintain my individuality, I'm going to just kind of pull back and do that. And also, they realize that what they used to perceive as insecurity of doing that, they're now flipping it and seeing it as there's more security to doing it because mm -hmm. they control it and they own it and someone isn't going to come along one day and, sorry, we had to downsize, you're gone. Okay. So- our economy is kind of moving generally like gig economy things moving that general direction. A lot of people like to diss on it because they'll say like, oh, it's so insecure and they're paid so little. And like, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, as I said, there are people traveling around the globe doing gig work when, from their computers. Doesn't work for everybody. But even if you live in a rural community with like advances in the internet, we're going to soon have, you know, Skylink or whatever mm -hmm. from Elon Musk. So people in rural communities are going to have better internet. We There's going to be more opportunities for people to function um, not literally off grid, but off the grid of the corporate grind yeah. and have a different way of ordering their life. And so what, what I see coming for education is something similar where people are going to realize that as my guest yesterday, Dr. Ping pointed out education 3.0, he said there was a 1.0, which was rich people, private tutors, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the royalty and aristocracy. Yeah. Education 2.0 was the people who were you know, those people became like guilds, trade guilds. So that now you need specialized, skilled people. And there'd be trade guilds that would trade them and you train them, you doctor, lawyer, whatever, but still only for a subset of the smartest, smartest people, not the masses. And education 3.0 was the first, it's what we have now, but we've also had it for over a hundred years. You mean Let's public. educate the masses. Yes. But also in private, even private schools still along the sort of factory model of you know, this grade by age, this grade by age, this grade by age. And we just turn, you know, you graduate, you and turn you out into this world to get a job, mm. right? Or to go to college and get a job. It's very, you know, like pfft, almost like funneling you into things. And at this point, it's not really working for people. Either they're going to college and spending a ton of money and coming out and being like, I don't have any skills because the people teaching in the colleges haven't been working in real life. And, you know, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but the point is we've needed a change in education anyway, for a long, long time, it's been a long time coming that the factory model, there aren't big factory jobs where you just need to have literacy and basic numeracy and go do your little nine to five job and retire in 60 years. We haven't needed that 
or, or that hasn't been sufficient for quite a while. And that is why you've seen a gap, you know, that people went to private school, go to the mm -hmm. Ivies and they become the leaders and the politicians and everyone went to the public schools. Like they're in service. Yes. They're mostly in a service economy, not a skilled economy, not even a trade skilled economy because they have to yeah. go back and almost get their math skills boned up to be in the trades. <laughs> and yeah. So people have been lamenting this kind of stagnation and we're all in service. Well, what do you think a factory model is for? When you're working in a factory, it's a kind of service. It's just not a servant customer service. It's like, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the thing. Same thing when you're working at a hotel desk or in a restaurant or any customer service or something marketing. It's still a service, still a service. So I think people are starting to realize it's not really working for them. It's not working for their kids. They're seeing the debt, they're seeing all that stuff. And so if we can come up with a way to help people understand, first of all, what the purpose of education is to tie it to the individual, like yeah. it's an intangible, so you own it. <laughs> like whatever you got can after we, 13, you own can it. Can we stop there for a second and say yeah. what say what that is? Because I think there's so many people who still are lost about what it is. I was one of these people who I went to a good school. I went to a good private school. And I was indoctrinated, as you know, into social justice ideology. And if you had asked me back then about the purpose of education, I probably would have said something along the social justice lines of, you know, to uh, to, to turn you into, I don't know if I would have been that explicit about to turn you into an activist, but to teach you the things you need to go out and to change the world and make it better. Right. And, and that's that very that's that idea that kind of marks idea that the purpose of school is to turn out these little activists for right. belief system to change the world. That's not the purpose of education. No. What what would you say it is? Well, first thing I want to address something you just said because what I really try to do with a lot of my content is point out underlying assumptions, hidden premises that no never get yes. questioned. And one of those is that we have to teach people certain skills or attributes to change the world and make it better. In, in other words, like direct instruction, like you need to fix the world as opposed to making better people like, but through indiv individually. So they, they're, they have the skills and the thought processes and the like worldview and knowledge base to simply be better able to take care of themselves and to respect what was, what is, and all those things, um, that it, you can't really direct instruct that. You, If you give people what they need to thrive as an individual, why wouldn't you already have a better world? And people say, well, if they know how to try, they'll just step all over people. And I'm like, some will. Mm -hmm. But when the vast majority who wouldn't see that happening, what's going to be innate in them is to stop that from happening. I mean, our founders understood free, um, both free will and human nature. And mm -hmm. part of why we have the Bill of Rights is they knew there'll be people who try to defraud you and try to lie to you and try to do bad things to you. But the vast majority of people don't do that. And yet you have to be free to be good. That was something the founders taught, taught us, or if you go read their writings, that if you don't have a measure of individual freedom to chart your own course, if you have to do what other people tell you, your the the side of your human nature that doesn't want to tolerate that because that's not a great way to survive. You mm -hmm. have to be able to adapt to situations to survive well and thrive. You're going to start breaking rules. You're, it's almost setting you up to be corrupt, which is why in these totalitarian sit, uh, situations, you see more organized crime, you see a lot of corruption, you see gangs because they don't have enough freedom to be good people. And the the 
people who have wealth and power and so forth are already the not good people because they were the only ones who could rise to that, you know, using force. So with education, the thing that I look at is I'm not averse to making things better in the world. I just look at it as a, a logical outcome of empowering individuals with what they need personally to thrive. And what is that? That is a certain foundation of knowledge because you, we do live in a very advanced society. So you can't turn someone loose at 18 with just a set of skills. Like you do have to have a knowledge base, a cultural proficiency. And in the culture in which you live, not just like know everything there is to know about some random tribe that was, you know, powerful 2000 years ago, you need to understand the vocabulary you're swimming in, the, 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 the cultural expectations of the place where you actually need to function now. You can't expect that you're going to be successful in changing it into the utopian vision you want it to be and teach some new vocabulary. You got to teach the one you've got now and live in reality. And then the skill sets that can only be taught are reason. We're born with the capacity to reason, meaning like, you know, make decisions, compare, contrast, use evidence and data and so forth and make a reason-based decision. We -hmm. have that capacity in our brain. It doesn't fully develop to early 20s, but it does start developing around like puberty time and it gets a little more and a little more. But if you're not taught to use it, it's like a muscle. You d- it, yeah. It'll just atrophy. And young children, as we know, have a more rudimentary morality. So, th- you know, there's there's a downside to trying to get too much into this is how you should think when they're young because they'll just follow whatever the adult tells them. They don't have yes. the ability to reason it this out. Is- and- they don't have the knowledge to say, I don't think that's true. Let me question you and figure it out. They accept what they're told. Like Santa Claus yeah. is real. Okay. The Easter Bunny is real. Whatever you say. Same with the tooth fairy. Same with whatever. And woke so, ideology seems to want to keep people in that infant state. It's a suspended state. state of toddlerhood. Yes. Where they just tell you yeah. what to think, not how to think. And they want you to believe that your emotions are facts and as worthy of respect by others and as worthy of validation by others as any other fact. Like, and, and it's, of course, a weird thing because they're also simultaneously talking about tolerance and diversity and inclusion. But you can't really have diversity of thought without diversity of thought. You can't really have inclusion if you won't, won't tolerate thoughts that differ from your own. If you're going to be mm-hmm. offended, hurt, traumatized. And you certainly aren't going to be inclusive if you try to cancel people. So everything they do and say is on the opposite end of true. It's like a projection. But with real education, the purpose of education, in my view, is to equip people to be resistant to these kinds of arbitrary, dogmatic, um, authoritarian worldviews, whatever they might be. Today, Mm -hmm. flavor could be Marxist. Tomorrow, flavor could be fascist. It doesn't really matter what you call it. Um, unless you're deep into want to understand the origins, which I do, and I do try to explain in my channel. But if you're just talking about the purpose of education, it is to sort of equip and arm the individual person with what they need to maintain that individual freedom. And you cannot do it if you don't have as much knowledge, at least fact-based knowledge, as the people who would would rule you, even if they don't currently. Okay, mm-hmm. you can't be more ignorant than they are, and you have to have the tools to learn what you don't already know. So that when someone comes along, because you can't know everything and they can't teach you everything in a school. What? So if some, okay. if some okay. person <laughs> who wants to rule you or or lead you, 
as they say, or even represent you, comes along and tells you, we had, you know, blah, 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 percentage of people were you need to have enough numeracy and enough knowledge and enough historical perspective to say, that sounds, that's really convenient statistic for someone who wants my vote. I'm going to go check that out. So you need to have the skill set. First of all, the worldview to be skeptical of people seeking power because you have enough knowledge of history to know that yes. hasn't worked out so well. So without knowledge of history, you might go, yes, save us a wonderful one, right? But if you had a perspective, you go, I remember a couple other times somebody came along and said they had all the answers and uh, it didn't go so well for hundreds yeah. of millions of people. So this is what an education is for, is it makes you, um, you know, it, it, it makes you capable of maintaining your freedom. Yes. Constitution aside, the Constitution is a piece of paper. And as of now, we all know that it's already only as good as people are willing to stick up for it. And that's not so much. So what's going to fix that? Taking kids from a very young age, making sure they know how to read well, write well, uh, you know, do math at least as well as the adults trying to persuade them the numbers matter and so forth, and also to manage their own finances and, and so on. And then when they get a little older, you know, middle school age and so forth, where now you can have some difficult conversations, they should be more Socratic. They should be more like, I, you don't know what I think. I'm not here, you know, I'm there to impart knowledge, impart knowledge, early childhood. Teach, 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 teach. Because they're little sponges and they love to know stuff and they love to memorize things. But once they get to like middle school and they start wanting to, you know, pull away and use that. And what mm -hmm. I try to, you know, explain is then education becomes about how to learn and how to be a lifelong learner, how to be skeptical, how to challenge authority, how to ask the right kinds of questions, how to be okay with being wrong, how to, you know, understand the difference between right and wrong, and not just right, wrong values wise, but right and wrong, correct and incorrect, factually, the difference between opinions and facts and so forth. So when you go into high school, and now the rubber's meeting the road, and you're trying to decide on a life path and a career and college or trades or whatever, you have a much broader perspective on the world you're about to enter mm -hmm. than you ever would have before. Instead, we sort of keep these kids for 13 years in this sort of suspended animation in an arbitrary world where they're in their only their age cohort all year long in this insular world with the people, the adults with them have not actually worked in the outside world, don't know what really goes on. They don't understand supply chains. They don't understand the economy. They don't understand. They talk about living yeah. wage and like, you don't even know what that means. So my, my professors were like, like my women's studies professors is a great example. I went to a great school, but a uh, science major, but women's studies minor. And I just think back to how, I don't know. <laughs> How, uh, how unprepared they were to teach me about anything other than uh, the, the, the feminism and the, and the tenets of this Marxist kind of ideology right. that had crept into feminism. And as you're saying, it never occurred to me at that age to wonder, like, right. have they ever run a business? Have they ever been in the world outside of academia? Have they right. ever, are they necessarily the right people to be, I don't know, right. imparting all of this knowledge? Right. And so but, like the old model is let's take children and isolate them from the real world for 13 years and then unleash them on the real world and say, go, go for it. And then wonder why they dive into social media, because to them, that's like as close as they can get to anything they would perceive the as the real world, but it isn't. It's manufactured and packaged and performative. And so my vision for the new model or what my guest yesterday, Dr. Ping calls um, education 4.0. And he it's it's really his idea 
I mean, it's my idea too, but he's articulated it in the words I'm about to use as a more entrepreneurial model. Um, you might have teachers who, you know, take similar to like version two, you know, education 2.0, only much more egalitarian in the sense that you, the per, you know, you don't have to be some wealthy person or the smartest person in the world. You can go ahead and seek out these kinds of teachers for your kids and either organize a group of, you know, 10 or 12 people and go find some, you know, teachers who are just passionate about their subject in your area. And, you know, maybe you have a different one for each subject. Maybe you have one who just guides the students as they or, you know, auto dictats, you know, like they're using the internet and they're using different things to access most of these materials. Um, not necessarily all online, but, you know, perhaps little centers will spring up. There's already mathnasium. There's already, you know, there might be science centers that spring up. So the point is, I think there's a huge market um, in, in the economic sense for people to say, I'm going to serve these people and provide them with an opportunity, like outside their little house, if they don't want to sit home and do it to provide a customized individualized um you know education now as far as the money part of it i think where we talk about school choice if you will it's i'm not interested in going from this building this building in a, in a government system um as the future i don't th I mean, I think you're just moving the deck chairs around i think um what i would prefer to see is a policy where when parents get to choose what they think is the best model for their children. I think as Robert Padicio, another, another guest I've had on has said, we will always have to have a public option. There will always be foster children. There will always be um, homeless children. There will always be immigrants who, you know, just, uh, there will always be a population of people who need a public option. So I just want parents, even those parents at some point when they're like, all right, I'm starting to figure out the lay of the land mm -hmm. here been here a couple years, or it's my second kid or whatever. And I'm starting to learn, I really would prefer, or this child's different from that child. This child's thriving in this public setting. The other one I want private. But when we get the money into the hands of the parents and the parents choose and the schools have to compete and we decentralize, I do want to abolish the Department of Education. I do want to get rid of the huge state centralization, return it to local, you know, control local city, local county kind of control. And I think then that's, that's our hope is that we, we come up with, um, things that really serve the people who need them, but it's going to start in my opinion, not with trying to beat on the current system and say, change, change, change. I don't think it's going to work at all. It's completely captured. Um, and it's too big and has too many like white blood cell like systems in place to fight us yeah. off. And it sees us as cancer. So it, they'll work real hard at it. Um, but we have to just leave. It's, it's like a bad relationship. You can't change that person, but you can disengage and go live your life. And that's what I see. Yes. As necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting is I think a lot of this is going to have to do with the changing mindset of parents, which is what you're talking about, that more parents are, are, they're changing the way they think about education and their role in their kids' education. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I think a lot of people especially on the left where I've lived most of my life and maybe on the right as well. People have thought of education and because we've always had this public education system, we've thought of it as something that government does. Well, that's where you go. You go to the right. government for education, but, but it, it was really, it turned my mind upside down to start to think about why, why exactly? Why exactly. am I trusting? Why should we trust the government to educate children? When you stop <laughs> and think about it, you're like, this is a huge conflict of interest. It is. Yeah. It's a huge conflict of interest. And, and 
you know, the idea of what you're saying about having schools, putting the money in the parents' hands and letting them pick the best option and then having competition so that schools become better. If anybody is watching this and is still still questions, you know, it, it still thinks that, that the government has our, our your kids' best interests at heart and that that's the best way and most equal way for kids to get a good education. Just look at the look at the proficiency rates in math and English and how they've fallen every decade they fall further. Like we don't even have the vocabulary. I know I've mentioned this on videos before, Deb, but I, I was shocked when I stumbled across online once these um, letters, you can read these letters from civil war uh, soldiers, mm. uh, people in the union and the Confederacy writing home to their loved ones. And a lot of these guys, th these enlisted guys, they were just, they didn't have, they didn't go to private schools. You know what I mean? They weren't like, no, exactly. they weren't like very well-educated people, but they had a vocabulary that made me envious. I was like, why don't we speak like this anymore? I mean, they just, it was more, uh, we like, look at me. I can't even put words together right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but they can articulate themselves in ways that we have trouble doing. Well, you know, um, the other day I sort of made a joke on Twitter where I, showed I, I i found some statistics on literacy well illiteracy to be more accurate mm -hmm. and to show our evolution of illiteracy and it was done also by race because i was curious like we're over the last 120 years actually it wasn't the last 120 it was 120 years leading up to the 1970s something right okay. right before right before they the, carter created the department of education right before wow. and so i looked at the statistics and, you know, the statistics were a little bit predictable in the sense that if you looked at during, you know, pre-Civil War and, you know, like, uh, or not pre-Civil War because 120 years wouldn't take us there, but like Reconstruction period, obviously the illiteracy rates were much higher in the black community and so forth. But between Reconstruction and in the white population, it was like you know, 90%, whatever, regardless of socioeconomic level. Um, prior to, so at, from Reconstruction to the late seventies or mid seventies, rather, we brought that debt. We brought illiteracy, even in the black community down to like 1.6%. Okay. Now things were not hunky dory rosy in the seventies, you mm -hmm. know, as far as equality between white people and black people and so forth and so on. And, right. and, and that's in including um, Hispanics and so forth. And I posted it and I said, you know, since we've got the 70s gas problems back and the, you know, fight with Russia, and it's like, seems like the 70s are coming back in other ways. I said, could we, can we get something, can we get the literacy rates back? <laughs> you know, because they were so much better. They were better. And what we've seen is not only have we spent at least double, at least double on public education since they established the Department of Education. And we are now spending just under a trillion dollars. Somewhere in that, well, if you add up all the COVID spending, I think it will come to a trillion. But prior to COVID, the last figure I saw was just under 800 million or 800 wow. billion. Sorry, 800 billion. So we're spending like just under a trillion dollars on public education. And that does include, um, I do believe that does include some of the, the federal contributions to public colleges, but most are funded mostly by their states. So but you get any place that the federal government is contributing to that adds in. But overall, that's what we're spending. And our scores have gone like this. And if you look at the timeline, it's like 1980. No. Nosedive. So federal involvement, making it more and more centralized has not only not helped us, it's made it exponentially more expensive, corrupt, 
conf you know, conflict of interest. The unions have gotten ridiculously powerful. You've now got close to 5 million teachers union members in the United States between the AFT and the NEA. And those are just the two biggest. That's like counting local unions and other things that are affiliates. These associations, they're public sector unions that have all kinds of power as far as money to spend on candidates, whether for school board or for legislature where they make education policy, the self-interest is off the rails. So what I've been trying to get parents to understand is that, and there's even case law that goes back pretty far to like the history and the beginning of the history of education that says that because it is state funded, because it is government school, the government reserves the right to teach the children what the government deems the children should know. So all you need to have a full-blown indoctrination center in a public school, even a charter school, because they won't approve a charter for one they don't agree with. Um, all you need is you need the people in the Department of Education and in the unions for to be ideologically in sync, and they will choose that curriculum. We just kind of got lucky for a lot of years that the people in those positions of power were not so off the rails, far, far left. There was enough diversity of thought that it, it wasn't so bad. But we've been teaching a, a Marxist view of U.S. history since the late 80s. Wow. In the Howard Zinn textbook. So it's not it's not new. It just has gotten worse and worse and worse as more of the original traditional people died or retired. Yes. And the new ones were educated in the universities to the new way of thinking. And they come in and now it is 100% legal what they're doing. Unless you have like a Ron DeSantis come in and say, you can't speak about this specific topic because, and this is very important for your audience to understand, and this has also been upheld in courts so far. It's hired speech. Teachers are hired speech. They don't have academic freedom as a, a presenter in a public school, in a K-12 school. They're, first of all, they're teaching minors. It's very like you have 18-year-olds for this long, okay? Second of all, they're not researchers themselves. It's not like a professor where you can argue, I'm doing, getting my PhD in this class I'm teaching as part of a research project. No, you don't have academic freedom as a teacher and even in a state school as a professor to just preach. You absolutely do not have that. They don't have unlimited freedom of speech. The government does. In other words, if the people developing the curriculum or approving the curriculum or the people at the State Board of Ed say you must learn this, then the teacher has to present it. But if the teacher wants to just go in a classroom where the government has not said that and just spew and spew and spew, no, they can't do that. So for Governor DeSantis to come in and say you cannot initiate a conversation about sex or sexuality with children aged six through eight that's a that's a child protection law. That's not a gag order. That's not a don't say gay bail. That's but that's where you've got to have like the governor, or the legislature on your side as far as that. But you really, if they want, if they're New York or California and they want to teach your kid about Aztec sacrifice is the most beautiful thing ever, they can do that. If they want to teach you that communism is good, unless the, and even in California where there's a law on the books that says you can't do that, they violate it every day. Yeah. They openly violate it. It's like right there in their ethnic studies curriculum. They are celebrating communists, like known communists. They're celebrating it. And yet there is a statute in California that says you may not do that. They don't care. So like I said, laws, constitutions, all these are only as good as the people that you elect to enforce them. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't think there's a political solution because what they're doing is, is legal. You can't ban it. You can't ban CRT as an example. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Ban ideas? Like that you can't do. You can pull you can pull certain books out of the library, which is not banning, by the way. You can go to the bookstore and buy it. Go somewhere else, yeah. and read it to your kid. Yeah, 
I know yeah. that in Texas, for example, where I'm based, I read the so-called anti-CRT bill and much like what they're calling the anti or the don't say gay bill. I think a lot of the people who are pushing back haven't actually read it because no, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything other than you're not allowed to say that one race is superior to another race Correct. or more moral than the other race or to make, or to assign any, any characteristics, you know, to people because yeah. of race and say, it, it, there's nothing in there that's like you can't teach about racism. In fact, it it wants you. The bill includes new things. It, it you know parts of American history that have to do with yes. sexism and racism. They add new things that they yes, want to they be actually taught. Have, exactly. <laughs> the, well, see, and what when you go and read these bills, what you find out is that's so sad is that lawmakers had to sit down and reaffirm the Civil Rights Act. Why should they have to do that? Why not just enforce it? Why? Because yeah. the federal government's refusing to enforce it. Right. So it's Civil Rights Act is federal. So it, it, it does carry across to the states. The states don't get to opt out of the Civil Rights Act. But if the federal government won't enforce the Civil Rights Act, then the state has to step up and make their own. So these are versions, in a way, applying specifically to education, which they haven't had. They didn't think they needed it. They're affirming the Civil Rights Act and simply saying you may not discriminate and treat people differently. Now, for your audience, why might that be necessary? Well, let's take a look at Washington State right now. They are announcing in a specific school district that they will, like unashamedly, we will be assigning disciplinary measures based on race. They've explicitly stated that in order to make up for this is Ebram X. Kendi's idea of the only thing that can make up for past discrimination is current is present uh, discrimination. And they're putting that into practice. They are literally making an anti-racist discipline policy in this district. You can look it up, Washington State, you know, uh, whatever, to um, to discriminate with the discipline. Now, I can tell you that has been a, you know, a de facto situation in almost all major urban and suburban districts for the last, well, gosh, almost 10 years, anything called mm -hmm. restorative justice or anything like that. And you can uh, watch my show with Max Eden. It'll talk, he'll talk about their, their equity numbers and things that they had to do with discipline. So this is not new. This is just the first time they're being in your face, explicit about it and saying, that, you know, they're, they're going to do it. It's not just like, we're going to nip around the edges at, at it. And it is 100% so, a violation of federal law. It's racist. So for example, oh, so it is that, absolutely racist. so that I understand this correctly, it's like, they're going to, and for any parents who are confused, they're basically going to say, uh, different consequences for correct. rule breaking based on what your race is. So that you is correct. You can be tardy or you can not do the test or et cetera it, it, if you're black, but not if you're white. Like they, they're going to have different standards. Right. For and I want to be clear about something here. There's the obvious component to that that is, you know, stick it to whitey. Okay. You know, that's kind of this Ibermex Kendi of like, we're going to discriminate against you because that's, you know, whatever. Um, the, the, the sort of, um, what do they call it? A, a genetic fallacy, right? That you're, you know, you're carrying all this guilt, but there's, it's also incredibly racist against anyone who's not white. Yes. We don't have any expectations of you to behave. Yeah. And, you know, like it would be wrong of us, you poor little deer, you know, let's pat you on the head that, you know, it's okay. You're tardy. It's okay. You beat someone up. Will Smith hit somebody. That's part of the culture. It's all part of it. It is so it is white supremacist. Why would you do that? If you didn't think that the people within the community that you claim to be helping wouldn't be like not be able to, you know, take advantage. 
right. of that to gain to gain leverage. Like if you thought that uh, the majority of the people in that community would sort of, you know, be your equal, why would you need to make allowances for them like that? Yeah, it's so, so messed to me, up. It is so racist in every direction. It's not just I'm worried about kids who look like my kids, you know, getting hurt. I think it is an abomination. They are sacrificing an, an, another generation of black and brown children to these low, like garbage expectations. They're ruining these children and allowing the few. And there are, whether it's white, black, brown, it doesn't matter what population you're in. There will always, always, always be those few people who really just are, you know, violent. They're going to misbehave, whatever. I mean, they come from a terrible home life. They need extra, they need to be pulled out and go somewhere else. Putting them in with the gen pop, so to speak, mm -hmm. is going to hurt them and the general population of students. And what they're doing is they're increasing the likelihood, just like in prison, where that those hardened students, like I don't even want to be here, and I uh, create more of themselves. You can send, you know, remember in the movie Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne says, "I had to go to prison to become a criminal." Yeah. Well, we're seeing. I mean, he was such an upstanding guy until he was wrongly sent to prison. Well, I, to a certain degree, see the public schools as much more similar to prisons than institutions of learning because yes. kids fall into these tribal little groups they have since we were kids, you know, the jocks, this, that only now there are serious real world political, social political consequences of the little clique that you're in, of the tribe that you're in, the affinity group that you're in. And, you know, you step out of line, you know, from when you're in college, you step out of line, you say the wrong thing and you, you, you've lost, that's your identity. You've, you'd be attacked. And we're seeing more violence for that very reason. In essence, to sum it up, Everything they claim to be doing or want to do, they're doing 180 degrees wrong. Completely There's even wrong. research to support that emphasizing similarities, emphasizing common values, emphasizing common goals brings people together, reduces racism, reduces sexism, reduces all the isms and the phobias. And what drives people apart is emphasizing differences. It's common sense, really. This is what it. Martin Luther King did. He used inclusive yeah. language. And like you said, there's lots of studies showing that that's what works. He, You focus on the similarities. What do we have in common? You use Correct. the inclusive language like we and us. And that's what he was great at. The social justice people are the antithesis of, of Dr. King. They're, they're all about highlighting our differences and and drawing this chasm between us and saying we can't bridge this it's us and them it's you and me it's it's all about right. oppressor and oppressed there's no there's there's none of the inclusive language right that came with actual liberalism so um none. so I, I don't want to get too far on that tangent though i do want to bring it back to um the schools and what's happening in yes. the schools and Washington being a great example of, of what I've seen. Um, California, I was talking to a parent in California a few years ago when I first started doing uh, podcasting. And this was a, you said that the Civil Rights Act is not being enforced. And this was, a, this was a parent who was trying to pursue a lawsuit, you know, about with the Department of Education about a, the violation of the Civil Rights Act because his kids were coming home and I'm talking about kids younger than third grade and learning things and speaking things out of the out of the mouth of babes is what you when you learn what this ideology is really about. And the children are coming home and asking, why are white people bad? And and this is what they're learning in school. Right. And so 
if if I think you I think you happen to be right. I don't think the uh, pursuing the political or legal avenue is going to do very much because I do think the whole system is corrupt. So for parents who who have kids in the public school, and I know you said you know you've got kids who've been back in the public school. What can parents? They're do? out now. They've been out for yeah. three years again. So oh, that's great. Yeah, what can parents do? If they don't um, have the option to pull them out, and then I do want to talk about pulling them out. But if they okay. don't have that option for whatever reason, Here, well, let me let me let me first differentiate between you know can't and very very difficult. Okay. So in my case, when my kids had to go in the public school because of a divorce, that was a true can't situation. I fought. I actually hired lawyers and everything to try to you know get them out. Um, I brought a case about two of my kids are on the spectrum, and I explained some of the problems they're having with mental health because of it. And it didn't matter um, because the government tends to side with itself. And if the one parent wants them in the public school, the government's like, okie dokie then. Because if they don't agree, the default position is without reams of expert testimony about how the kid needs some special fancy education, they will be in the public school. So I literally was threatened with contempt of court and jail if I tried to remove my children from school against my ex-husband's wishes. So that's a true can't situation. And tragically, there are, I'm not alone. There are other parents in that situation, and my heart absolutely breaks for them. Um, people who are in a situation where they say, well, I'm a single parent, or I really we have to have these two incomes, et cetera, and so forth. What I would say there is I would say, you you have a freedom I didn't have. I, I I didn't have the freedom to even, I mean, I was technically a single parent for a little while, not single parent, meaning I wasn't married again. I'm married again now, but where I would have had to you know, be broke and find a job that worked from home and do all kinds of things and make all kinds of sacrifices to make it continue to happen. I even offered my ex-husband that I would like drive to his house, pick them up, teach them at my house, bring them back. I mean, I offered to make unbelievable amounts of sacrifices to make it happen was still told no. So you have something you don't have, which is the ability to choose. If there's nobody standing in your way saying you can't, then I would really like to encourage you to dig deep with the little engine that could approach and saying, okay, what if I could, let's look at it. What do I do in the summer? Everybody has some summer solution. So start there and then take a look at your finances. Say like we have two incomes, but what do we mean by need? Are there sacrifices we could make? Now, I mean, I'm not talking small sacrifices like getting rid of your fire stick. I'm talking about you might need to, you know, downsize your house or things like that. I mean, and if it sounds crazy, let me, let me, let me illustrate something for you about, for example, Chinese immigrant parents. When they come here, the number one reason their kids do so well academically is they do things like that. They make these humongous sacrifices to make sure their kids have the best education. Why do they do it? They do it because they, partly it's cultural, right? But also partly because they understand, and this is what I talked to Dr. Ping about, that your child's education is who they're going to be. In, in, in the most basic terms. And, you know, Jordan Peterson has said, you know, don't, don't let your kid do anything that would make you dislike them. Well, what about if the school is gradually every day turning them into somebody who not just will dislike you and reject everything about you, but may actually quite possibly become dangerous to you and themselves? First, more dangerous to themselves, because if they do become a victim of some of the more, you know, negative messages in this and turn their 
uncomfortable feelings on themselves. We've seen cutting, eating disorders, depression, suicide is off the charts, um, rapid onset gender dysphoria, all kinds of things that are manifest of the kinds of mental health problems yes. that go along with the style of teaching. But also if they don't, if they lean into the ideas, they're ready to go quote, no contact from their parents sometime at 15 and 16 years old, where they're like, I don't want to have any, they canceled their parents. And that's what happened in Mao's China. He explained that they became a danger to their parents. I'm going to report you. I'm going to turn you in. I'm going to call DSS. I mean, we have seen situations like that where kids are removed from their homes and the parents can't do anything about it because of political reasons. So that's where I actually see that this could go. So people say, oh, it's this is hard. I'm like, okay, well, compare and contrast with having an adult child that you've raised and you went to work every day. And so you could put, you know, a nicer roof or feed them and take them places and do things only to discover they don't even want to talk to you. They don't want to know you or they're quite possibly harmful to you in yeah. some way. They steal from you. They turn you in, report you to the police or whatever. And, and I know that sounds crazy. And there's probably parents at home going, is she insane? But it's actually been happening already. This has been happening. There, it's been happening. I was, I was talking to, do you know who Billboard Chris is? Yes. I, I interviewed him. He's wonderful. Oh, I love him. He, I was just talking to him the other night and he was telling me a, just a tragic story of a parent in, I think it was California who the school kept, kept it from the parent that her daughter was falling into this trans ideology that they've, yeah. they've infiltrated into, you know, put into the schools and, uh, they kept it from her because she's Catholic. I think they didn't, they thought, you know, she's not yeah. going to be okay with this. Mm -hmm. Didn't tell her that her daughter was grappling with these issues and ended up the state of California removed the child from her care because she wasn't, 16. she wasn't endorsing. You know who I'm talking about? She wasn't this endorsing. Is this is Yale who be became Andrew. Um, yeah. And, and I watched the video that the mom made. I recommend it to your audience as well. It's on YouTube. And I, I couldn't stop crying. Um, this was a little girl. First of all, looking at her baby pictures and her little girl pictures, it was reminding me so much of two out of my three daughters, like the girliest girls you ever see. I mean, like just little pink dresses and everything. And having been a tomboy, I didn't know what to do with them. Right. But this little girl was like the little princess. Okay. Mm. And, but sort of around, and it's very typical for middle school age, she started to get depressed. She started to get quite depressed. Um, it happens. It's happened, you know, in, in my family. So um, lots going on. And of course, things, as I just said, the, the ideas perpetrate, you know, per perpetuated in the school and taught in the school are kind of depressing. The world's a terrible place. People don't like you because you have brown skin. Um, we're, the world's yeah. going to end in 12 years anyway, by the way. So et cetera. Oh, by the way, we adults couldn't fix any of this racism or climate stuff in the last 400 years, but you fix it. That yeah. if you're a sensitive child and you are a caring child, you, that can hit really hard. We're supposed to give kids like hope and dreams for the future. And we're saying like, there is no future unless you fix it. I mean, that's a pretty heavy message that people mm -hmm. aren't thinking about. They're all about trauma informed and then they traumatize the kids. So I wonder if her daughter, you know, was, she was feeling depressed already. And then what happened was she got on Tumblr and her poor mom didn't know about Tumblr, didn't know about the stuff on social media. Um, she fell into a little rabbit hole on Tumblr of people who were in this sort of trans stuff. Some kid at her school recruited her into the LGBT club and said, you know, you're probably depressed because you're really a boy and you just haven't been able to live like that because your mom's Catholic or whatever. And so they persuaded her in her depression. She was vulnerable as people mm -hmm. who are depressed often are. They're looking for a solution to feel better. 
And she started insisting that her family call her Andrew and things. She was going to counseling in school and out of school. And the parents were like, we don't, we don't want to call you Andrew. We don't, we don't feel comfortable that we don't, we love you, but we don't think this is the answer. So they were pushing back on this being the answer. They kept wanting the, their other therapists to find other avenues to help yeah. her with her depression. And the school took a heavier hand and the school said, you're not affirming enough and you're being abusive to not affirm her. They were helping her even, I think, get the hormone treatments without her parents' knowledge Permission. or consent. And that, of course, made her more depressed. And so the school then saw the increased depression and attributed it to the parents, which is what's happening now, by the way, parents, if your kids show depression, the automatic go-to is the family is the problem. They don't think that maybe the kid is uncomfortable at school. Maybe all this curriculum stuff is making them scared or feel uncomfortable. It's a girl and she doesn't want to go in the bathroom with biological boys that are now gender neutral and she's scared, but they go, oh. It's the parents. They're not accepting of all the new stuff, which is why screaming at your school board can be a little scary um, because they will note your name yeah, and then go to your kid and go, are you, is it okay? Cause I know your mom is very, whatever they did that to yeah. my kid. They did it to wow. my kid. They were just like your mom, whatever. So with this little girl, they did that. They said, well, it's because your mom, they took the kid out of the home, put her in a group home, allowed the mom to see her once a week supervised. Imagine wow. seeing your own precious child. Your 16-year-old who you've been worried about now for five years because she's been depressed and she's like 11. And you think this is absolutely wrong. This is not the right direction. But government officials, a.k.a. the school, the school counselors, the social workers, DSS, have removed on pain of jail if you try to fight it. And lawyers wouldn't help her. She certainly couldn't afford like big fancy lawyers or whatever. So she stayed in this group home. And the... You know, she didn't realize things were bad and she got one last text from her daughter that things were okay. And the next day she got the call that her daughter had kneeled down in front of a train to kill herself. And she says, this: they took my daughter, they killed my daughter and I'm with her 100%. That is exactly what they did in service to an ideology. Yeah. It's in service to an ideology. Uh, James Lindsay is going to be doing a series on what that ideology is and why it's attached to this. Why? What you? A lot of people are confused. Like, why is like queer ideology and trans ideology connected to like critical race theory? Essay? Like, they don't understand like why this would be an, an agenda. Item. It's all. He, he's going to explain. It's it. all the way I usually describe it is it's all one umbrella belief system, and mm -hmm. it's it's they have. They basically say that the world is best looked at as a, a competition for power between identity groups. That's how it's connected. They under that umbrella is every identity group you can imagine. It's it's the trans, it's the women, it's it's black people, it's you know, gay people. It's they pull in now, now they're pulling in fat people and mental health people with mental health problems and any kind of identity, it gets sucked up into this evil belief system. Well, you want to really then, you want me to really blow your mind? Yeah. Dr. Ping, who's a Christian, believes that this is a secular kind of a religion, in other words, a godless religion, where what they're trying to do is bring about revelation uh, you know, in their terms. In other words, they want to pull the utopia they imagine, the paradise they imagine of everybody's perfect equality out of the wreckage of what we have now. That they are actually right. intentionally trying to destroy. Because if you read Antonio Gramsci, you, he says we have you in order to bring about the revolution and the true utopia, you have to take apart the family, education, you know, entertainment, the media, et cetera, 
and the law. And once you take apart and religion, so you have to take all those core institutions that hold civilization, Western civilization that is very resistant, it's individualistic, it's resistant to revolution because it's it works for people, whatever. But in order to bring about that perfect, per, you know, like really the guy really believed it, that you could bring about this paradise on earth and that you had to first burn it down. So to answer your question about what should these parents do? And this is what he said too, is imagine your kids are in a burning house. It's in a house on fire. You don't really plan where you're going to take your kid after you get them out of the burning house before you decide to pull them out of the burning house. You pull them out of the burning house and then you figure it out later. Yes. And that's kind of my advice to parents is like, find a warm body, find somebody, find neighbors that agree with you, find some friends in the short term, just like you did with COVID. Like that's what the good thing about the COVID lockdowns may have been. It may have been like a weird way that we, we got we got given a gift if we look at it the right way. First, we got a window into what they were doing on the computer. Secondly, parents did have to make all these weird accommodations. Some of them now feel a little more empowered. Like, you know, we survived. We made it through. It's silver lining. Yeah. You know, but, and we, you know, but we didn't die and we did, you know, it's like, it, it, it was, it was really, really uncomfortable, but is it as uncomfortable live, as living in the husk of what used to be Western civilization? Maybe not. We've, we saw what happened in that so-called summer of love. Yeah. With those protests. Now, multiply that by an order of magnitude. And that's what they're tr literally trying to do. Dismantle the nuclear family, dismantle traditional religion, dismantle traditional sexual roles and 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 family and like all the social roles, dismantle the economy and have everybody have things equal. It is really quite scary because they truly believe it. And and people say to me, why would they believe that? Because don't they know about, you know, what communism did and all the deaths and everything? No, the answer is no, they don't because they have failed to teach it. There's been a red washing in education yeah. for the past 40 years. And so the people who are going to classrooms today who are like 20 to 35, they know almost nothing about that I went. Stuff. I went to a great nothing. school, Deb. I, I went to Duke. I knew nothing really yeah. about communism. And I was reading Marxist literature in my women's studies classes and not even fully comprehending what it, where it came from, what it was a part of, where it came from in history and what had happened. You know, we learned about fascism, but we didn't learn about communism in the same way. This is how and when you know, years later, I would just quick years later, I could be when I, when I, I left um, school and I started working in entertainment and I took my ideology with me, like a good little trained puppet from, from college yeah. and uh, took it into entertainment and, I worked with a comedian who we did a whole t-shirt design she wanted to do that was like an homage to Che Guevara. And we could do stuff like that and, and never even comprehend what we were doing. There's also another component to that because part of it is knowing the history, but young people, idealistic young people, it's really because Marxism is so emotionally satisfying, right? And, and nobody denies that he didn't give a game plan how to implement it, right? That it's so it's not that hard to say, well, okay, yeah, but that's because somebody, some totalitarian took advantage and took over and it ceased to be Marxism, right? That's what they'll say. It wasn't really tried. It's kind of like I would say, you know, free market capitalism wasn't, hasn't been really tried, right? Mm -hmm. But the difference between me and that person is that in addition to my understanding of the historical framework around it and what happened when people tried to implement it, I also have something called first principles. I have a, an understanding 
of what is right and wrong in terms of philosophy that is grounded firmly in individualism. So I'm I'm a Lockean. You know, I've read like the the about natural law and what your your inalienable rights really are, like what you were endowed by your creator with, with the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which is basically property and things like that. Um, the right to defend yourself, all these things. So when it it when I look at something like Marxism and they say, well, it wasn't implemented properly, like, I would pose the question, tell me then how you could implement a Marxist society where ever to each according to his needs and according to their but whatever that statement is. Yeah. Without violating the individual liberty of people. Because Damn. it is, I also understand human nature, which is a thing. I do agree with that. E.O. Wilson was right. He did all the research. I don't dispute that human nature is a thing. Many Marxists do. And so there will always be people who say, you can't have my stuff. Not because they're selfish, but because they earned it. They built it. They yeah. earned it. And they're more capable and they're smarter. It's what makes a world. We, you know, the, the, just like you look outside and there's all different kinds of trees and flowers and all kinds of things. And it all works together in, in, in this wonderful symbiotic relationship. Human beings, while we might be one species, we were created able to adapt to our environment and adapt our environment to us. That's what makes us unique in all the living creatures. And we have reason. We are we have more of that. We actually have more of a desire to keep what we built and modified because we know that we did it. It's yeah. we have, we're conscious that we did it. Animals aren't okay. They fight because like, I might die if you take my little cave. We're like, I built that thing jerk, you know? So that's not going away. So I ask them, what, well, tell me then what is the right way to try it? That won't always necessitate using force against the people who don't like your ideas. And that's the question they can't answer. So the kids need two things. They need to be grounded in these kind of first principles of what is liberty and do you own your life or does anyone else own any part of your life? And if you think so, why? Why do you think so? If you think not, why not? And so on. And let them read some philosophy that competes against each other and have them arrive at the, you know, the principles ideally on their own. You don't want to indoctrinate them, but it's a rare kid because I think kids are sort of naturally in, in, inclined to individualism when they're born. You know, like there's my thing. It's my toy, right? Yeah. So you can leverage that in a rational way as they get older and re and let them read lock and things like that. But without that, without the grounding of philosophy, we all make decisions emotionally and then back them up with reason, not the other way around. So mm -hmm. what you hope for is that the emotions that you have, that the feelings that you have are influenced by, countered by, checked by, reality checked by the kind of reason that's grounded in philosophy. And we don't give that to our kids. We do not teach it. So that's yeah. a key point in the education yeah. purpose. When you're talking about that that tragic story um, that Billboard Chris had told me yeah. about the parent in California, you speaking of, you know, talking to emotions first, those are the kinds of stories I think we need to be telling that people aren't even aware these things are happening because that personalizes it. And it, it occurs to me that the parents who, as you made the distinction between can't and can't change the situation, can't take the kid out of public school, like in, in your case, um, and, and it would be hard to, right. Mm -hmm. But you, and I'm but not belittling that. It's not no. easy. I'm not okay, belittling it either. Sure people understand that. I do get that. I completely get it too. And I think, but it occurs to me that some of those parents 
may not understand how dire the situation is. No, they don't. Also, mm -hmm. they don't know. They don't know that the way you described it as a metaphor of like the burning house, they don't know it's a burning house yet. No. And, and I've talked to parents who've learned to, they learn when the fire touches their kid, mm -hmm. when it's a little too late, or, or maybe they're hoping it's not too late and then they pull them out. But right. so I think part of what we need to be doing is telling those stories and personalizing right. it and, and yes, bringing the emotion into it so that people understand like, what is at stake here when they're making that choice? You need to know what's actually at stake in order to. I think that's true. I think that's a big piece of it. I also though think that I've met some people who do see what's at stake and they do get it, but for so, so long, they've believed or been told that they wouldn't know how to do it or they would be, they're the wrong person to do it. Or, you know, maybe they only have a high school diploma themselves, or maybe they don't even have that. And so there's a sense of insecurity. So in other words, they might perceive what a big deal it is to educate their kid and feel completely ill-equipped. So they might be like, I know it's really bad, but I don't, I feel like I'd be harming them more. Or they'd have no friends or, you know, what would I do if I don't know how to teach them math properly? So, or I don't have the money to pay for private instructors or curriculum or, you know, so in other words, they feel like they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. And first of all, my first answer to that is you're, you're not because you love them. So the message you're sending to your children is first and foremost, that you love them enough to make the sacrifice and, and persevere and figure it out any kind of way. And while they might not perceive that today, the day will come where they will. Yes. Um, but the other thing is that you are protecting your family. Even if you, so there's no, there's no, uh, substitute for shielding your, your children from danger. And it's, a, it's an obvious danger over there. What people are think are insecure about is I won't do a good job. That's, that's not really dangerous. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if you, if, if you don't do the world's best job teaching them, whatever, getting them exposed to things they need to be exposed to, they are still going to be safe in the loving embrace of you and your family and the people, the adults you choose to be around them that you can vet yourself, you know, the same effort that people put into like, you know, choosing where to live or choosing where to work or buying a car or anything else is really about all the effort that's required. They just, I think, imagine it's so huge because the yes. public school system is so arcane and has so many people and uses such big words and so many documents and emails that I think people think that it's that it takes that to educate a child. And when they do, I've helped enough parents get started. And then they finally see what's involved. They're like, why are we spending all that money? This yeah. is like actually pretty easy. And, uh, this was cheap and we're spending how 20,000 a kid and, you know, and so on. So they don't know what they don't know. And yeah. I, that's part of why I do what I do is to kind of help people not just learn what's going wrong, but help me learn what you do already know. You know more than you think you know. You know your kid. You know your family. You know your lifestyle and what works with it. Um, you you know what you want your kid to be and how the kind of opportunities you want them to have. Um, you know your limitations. There's so much you know that you haven't given yourself credit for. And I'm kind of also on that side of it as the coach. You know, yeah. the like, rah, rah, you, you totally can do, can do it. And the people I've seen who who did listen and went and did it have had nothing but awesome things to say about how much better and more peaceful and happier their lives are, what close relationships they have with their kids. Sometimes it even improved their marriage because they're not like at odds with their children as much. 
And it's been really, really nice to see even one family at a time, see people kind of come back together and have that those kinds of relationships that are really torn asunder by the school system. Yeah. What, Deb, what, what is it about you that kept you from being indoctrinated? What is it about you that helped you see all this? Back when, when you said you were in these parents groups and you could see this coming a couple decades ago, why? <laughs> it's okay. All right. It, it's, it, you know, when I said there are certain things that are blessings in disguise, I was lucky enough. I don't know if you call this lucky. It's probably not lucky, but I grew up always an outcast. I was from the earliest days. I was the person I was, um, too young in my grade. They placed me ahead in my grade. So I was picked on because I was so short and I was so young. My mom was literally sending me to school in fourth grade in the seventies as smock dresses and Mary Janes. Yeah. I, I didn't have an easy time. Um, I did. Uh, yeah, it was bad. They were wearing like dance skin and bell bottoms. And I was in like literally smock dresses that were like Shirley temple. Cause I was eight wow. and everybody else was like nine and a half. Anyhow. <laughs> so, um, so I was always on the outs. It never really fit in. And I also grew up in a family with my dad and both grandfathers were litigators, lawyers mm -hmm. of the kind of old school, like Harvard, University of Chicago and Columbia educated. And so you could not have an opinion in my house. You couldn't sit at the dinner table and voice an opinion without my dad or even my grandfather just being like, where'd you get that idea? Why do you think that? Where's your evidence? Like I'd be cross-examined on a daily basis from a pretty young age and they weren't mean about it. They just wouldn't let me spout stuff off, right? They wouldn't let me yes. just say things. So I learned at a very young age that I better look into things before I form an opinion. And they would also impress that upon me explicitly. If I, they weren't like, they weren't mean, they would just say, you know, maybe you should look into that more before you decide how you think about it. Mm -hmm. And it was became a source of pride. Now, we also were lucky enough, um, you know, to have a set of encyclopedias and have a lot of books in our house. So in that sense, people would probably say I was privileged, right? Um, and I was pushed to read. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have computers. I wasn't allowed to watch TV except like once a year, Wizard of Oz or something, you know? Maybe after a while, I got to watch like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. But I think what happened was I just, I was very, very lucky. I grew up around thinkers who were absolutely committed to being thinkers and questioners. And um, I also grew up Jewish. And for those who don't know, you know, one of the things in Jewish culture is, first of all, you have a literacy test as a rite of passage. When you're 13, you have to read from the Torah. That's what a bat mitzvah uh -huh. is or a bar mitzvah is. It's essentially culturally a kind of a literacy test that you are now a, an adult in the eyes of the, you know, the synagogue or whatever. And believe it or not, it was also one of my relatives by marriage who was the guy who made bat mitzvah possible. He what? was a reform rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, it was only bar mitzvah. So anyway, but I, I did have one. And so it's part of the culture to be, to be a reader. And there's an old joke that if you have, you know, if you get like, I think it's like, if you get five rabbis in a room, you'll have like five, you know, completely different opinions or something. But it, I don't, I don't remember. Anyway. And somebody once asked a, a learned rabbi, you know, what does it say in the Talmud or, you know, what's the most important thing that says, it says, um, there is, you know, the Lord God is God and, you know, whatever, there's like one God and that's God. And then all the rest is commentary is basically it's it. All the rest is commentary. Purpose of that being that when you get these rabbis together, all they do is they sit and question things and question things and question things. And they're always like, what does this mean? What to this day, to this mm -hmm. day, there are people like questioning, questioning, questioning. It's kind of just culturally a thing to not take things at face value. Now I can't speak to like 
the current modern day American reformed Jews and, you know, like that. But the way I grew up, they took that very seriously in my house, not from a religious standpoint, but from a cultural standpoint that you question authority because authority has had a tendency to steer us wrong. And we got to we got to be ready yeah. to pack the stuff and go. Right. Um, so I think all that combined with just being kind of a quirky kid anyway, like I said, and I got bullied. So I didn't have a I wanted to fit in, but I also knew I wasn't going to change myself to do it. I kind of wish they just accepted me as I was, but that never happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it turned out as an adult to benefit me. And my dad used to say that he said, someday you'll be grateful. You're like this. You had a healthy self-esteem. I would cry. I would, oh my God, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and sit there and say, I liked being that way. I hated it. I hated being the one going, but the emperor's naked. What? Yeah. What? Do you guys not see? <laughs> and I had trouble at work, like all through my career. I was the person going, I don't think this business plan is going to work. And they're like, okay, bye. You can go now. Yeah. And I'm just, but I'm just trying to help you guys. So, and he would always say, you'll be grateful. The day will come. There's a reason you're like this. And the day will come that it'll matter and you'll see and you'll be grateful. And I am so grateful. Yeah. So even now, you know, transphobe, racist, this, that, whatever, white supremacist. I get called all the names and I, I couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. Couldn't care less. It just, you, you have a healthy self-esteem and there's that. so, there's that. so many parents. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many, um, not parents, yeah. adults, adults who don't, who are still in that childhood mentality of, they're too afraid. They let the the fear control them, the fear of what others think and all those names and everything. And it's like, I think that's, that's a, a big part of it thing in our culture, though, too. I mean, we are very much. And it's, like I said, that's why I have so much empathy for these parents. And I can't just go, what's wrong with you? You know, because it because it's not that anything's wrong with them. They they know what they know. They know what they were taught. They, too, were indoctrinated. They're just not really realizing it was at a lower key indoctrination. But one of the things that public school does to all of us is try to make us conform. It was a hundred years, go read Horace Mann and, and John Dewey. That was literally the point of it was to get all these different immigrant populations who were coming from all over, lots of Catholics too. And they're very suspicious of the Catholics and the blacks coming up from the South after reconstruction, they wanted everyone to conform and nobody be uppity about their, you know, differences, right? They wanted everyone to be the same. So conformity was part of the deal. Now, ironically, they want people to conform to being as different as they can be from each other because it's a divide and conquer thing. No, no, but just on the outside, all one conformed to one belief system, one idea. It is one belief system, right? one it's mind, all and deep, but right? We all look so different, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when you really cut right down to it, it's it's one mindset, and it really isn't their mindset. It's the great brain sitting in a case somewhere, often wherever yeah. it is. I don't know, Washington somewhere tells us what to think. Okay, and that so they grew up. Most parents were parents of school age kids today grew up in the time where it was like, you want to fit in, you want to be like other people, you want to be socially acceptable, you don't want to cause drama, you don't want to stand out, you want to fly below the radar, you don't want to lose your connections, you don't want to lose your job, You maybe you've got your job because of networking connections. It would be, they're terrified because they're not wrong. It could, just as we saw in COVID, with just COVID, forget pulling your kid out of school or questioning the school, just, I don't know about this mask and vaccine thing, get away from me, right? You know, so they saw that and they're like, well, hell no, I'm not raising my voice about education. Or they saw parents jumped on by cops at a school board meeting or called domestic terrorists and like, oh, no, oh, no I'm not doing this. And they have a legitimate fear. My point is, as scared as you are now, it's going to get worse if you do yes. nothing. 
Yeah, that's that's, that's what I meant about then. It is now that you can't breathe and you're like holding your tongue. Wait till you can't speak. Yeah, that's my point about them not some people not understanding how dire it is because if you do, then your fear. And in my case, I'm not talking about uh, being a parent or or having kids. I, I'm I would like to be a parent one day. Um, but I would like for you to be a parent one day. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but but in my case, uh, getting over that fear of speaking. And, and that, that social suicide, that career suicide, all that stuff. And it, it, uh, what happened in my case was that my fear of, of what would happen if I didn't speak became bigger. Once you understand what's at stake, that fear of what, if, if I do nothing, that will finally get you to move. So, you know, you're making me think of something too. My, my pastor just gave a sermon recently about, there's a lot of scripture that kind of relates to this, but that a whole idea of, um, in some ways, I think, I think man, I think humans, we sort of fear the social death more than we yes. do actual physical death. Some do. Mm-hmm. And it, and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there are a lot of verses about this. You have to lose your life to gain it. Mm. Those things that we're so afraid of losing. I'm not talking about physical mm. life. I'm talking about all the things that, you know, the career suicide, the social suicide and all that. It's like, yeah, but on the other side of it, I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. Like I found my life when I committed career suicide. <laughs> and it's <laughs> courage, courage. I think if you weren't just naturally gifted with it and very few people are, um, it has to be cultivated. And the one thing I could say is, you know, as much as I was an iconoclast, I don't want you guys to think that, you know, it was easy. Like I said, so I would do stuff and blurt things. And I, I have a suspicion I might be, have a little Asperger's going on, but I would just blurt stuff out and tell the truth. I just told the truth and told the truth and told the truth. And I didn't like even realize I was doing it. And I got ostracized and bullied and all kinds of things. And I hated it. And I cried. Like I told you, cause I was like, what did I do wrong? I didn't really understand because I was raised that way. But now that I'm older and I have a different perspective, I look at it. I don't have that sadness. Now I see it as, okay, first of all, I'm like this. I can't be any other way. So trying to change myself into some other person and I'm not doing anything wrong. Like I'm not rude. I'm not nasty or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just don't observe the, let me take your temperature, what you think first before I tell you what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't couch things in terms to make other people feel better about like politics or whatever. I mean, just, just about public stuff, not like, oh, why that color dress? Like I don't do that. Um, and I, but once you do that, once you sort of accept who you are and what you really think about a thing and you're willing to tell the truth, you do it one or two times, just matter of factly, and you start to feel it lifting off you. You start to feel, I've talked to other people who have told me, you just start to feel like stronger and we're like, wow, that wasn't half as hard as I thought it would be. And like you said, there will be people who are just recoil and pull away. Um, but there'll be new people. Yes. They'll see you for the first time. You'll be seen as really you. You're not some version of you that you put out to please people who would ditch you in a moment's notice. Like your real friends wouldn't do that to you. Right. They would be like, Oh, I only like you if your opinions are exactly like mine. Right. But new people who see you and recognize that courage and recognize the, the views that you have, the ideas that you have, they share your ideas. They share your goals. Wouldn't you rather 
take, you know, lose the ones that, whose respect you kind of like, if I could lose it that easily, I'd, why do I want it? And gain some new friends or gain a whole new social circle. And um, like I said, after I started just saying, I'm just going to put things out into the wild because the people I've lost every friend I had in, in where I live now by just being as vocal as I could be. It wasn't that I was avoiding being vocal. It just didn't come up. But mm -hmm. once I started being vocal, it was the people like, oh, yeah. Hey, bye. You know, like they yeah. see me in the carpool line. I just like run the other way. And I realized like, wow, okay, I have no friends anymore. That's awesome. They weren't really <laughs> my friends. Um, but I made all new friends and found not just friends, like people that I feel like I would want to be in their foxhole and vice versa. Yes. It's a yes. completely different kind of connection. Like I may not pick up the phone and call them and be like, let me tell you all about my day. It's not that kind of thing. But it's kind of like if I picked up the phone and said, all right, we need to go. We need to let's roll right? That yeah. these people were like locked and loaded. Let's go. You know, like, yeah. so, and increasingly I'm realizing that's what really matters in life. And you don't need 20 of those people. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I want to model that for my kids too. I don't want people to go, what about socialization? And I'm like, what about it? Why do you want the government socializing your kids? Yeah. <laughs> and when you really put it to them like that, they're like, well, it's not, it's the other kids. I'm like, who are being socialized by the government? Yeah. So the other kids are in the same boat. So what what do they know that's the special knowledge that you want your kids to have? And like, well, I just don't want to be alone. And like, but what if they are alone amongst all those people? I was. Lots of kids right now in school are alone emotionally. And they're more alone than ever because while they're sitting there in that room full of people, they are teaching these children mistrust. They're destroying any kind of, of you know, trust. But, you know, it's like, why are white people bad? Or like, that was a microaggression or don't comment about this. Or are you really straight? Are you really great? Why are you cis? You normie, you know, I mean, like I've seen it happen to my own kids. Like there you are with all these people, but you're constantly on your guard. What am I allowed to be? What am I allowed to say? What's okay to challenge? And am I going to get beat up? It's now to the point too, is like, am I going to get physically hurt if I do or I don't go along with the thing, my daughter, when they um, started changing like bathroom policies and stuff, not so much to make them unisex, but they um, made it so that because they thought kids were in the bathroom doing things they shouldn't have been doing, they reduced it to you could go to the bathroom three times a week. That's it. You had little tickets and she would have to hold it. Like, and she said, mom, you know, the first time I ever like, just about what myself in a public place. I was in seventh grade because of the policy of the school. So she was having anxiety attacks because like, oh my God, I can't drink anything. So then she got dehydrated. She wasn't drinking all day and passing out. I mean, they do insane things. So now you've got kids and they might be, feel alone as could possibly be because they don't want to go to the bathroom and they're holding it all day because they're afraid of the boys that are going in there. And this, or the pot smokers or the drug users or the people who just want to beat someone up and take their stuff, their phone, for example. So this is this notion that school is just like, hey, we have friends, whatever. Like for some kids, it's like that. For a lot of kids, it's not. Yeah. For a lot of kids, it's hell on earth. Plus and, the socialization, if it is happening, it's, it's, yeah. they're socializing them in a messed up way in a, in an upside down way. They're socializing them around all of this social justice stuff. Like you said, they're learning what they can and can't say, how they better keep their mouth shut. They're learning how to censor themselves. Yep. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, socialization is one of those bugaboos that I think ties people up in knots. And two things I'll say about that is what I've already said 
is a third thing. But the other one is there are a lot more homeschoolers than ever were. It doubled in just the last year, like 11%. <laughs> it used to be. I mean, that's a lot of people. Um, in my state alone of North Carolina, if we were a district, we would be the largest district in the state. Okay. And then the second thing is that you are going to have to do a little work on it. You're going to have to, you know, go out on Facebook groups and find different people. If you're in a rural area, you might have to sign up for 4-H or get your kid you know, involved if they're older. It really makes a huge difference when they're like middle school age and on. That's where they, they really want to be around their peers a lot. Um, you might have to find, you know, help them find a job, um, help them, you know, you know, form a club of your own. You'll have to do a little legwork to get them started. But it's not as hard as people imagine. And the extra bonus is your kid will have a say or a hand in figuring out who those people should be, what kind of shared interests they have. Mm -hmm. And it won't just be happenstance of like whatever other 11 year olds that happen to be thrown in there by the government based on zip code yeah. or busing. Even when my kids were in public school, the, because of busing, a lot of the friends they made or the social acquaintances they made lived in like, you know, 45 minutes away. They were busing them from all over the place. They didn't live in the same neighborhood. So it's not they like they were going hang home. Out. And, yeah. They couldn't hang out. They weren't just going out in the street and riding their bikes like we did when we were kids because our school was a neighborhood school. I think parents forget. We grew up with neighborhood schools. So you'd go home and he's like, I'll see you when I get home. I'll come by and we'll ride bikes. We'll do stuff. It's not like that. They're busing. They've joined districts, all this kind of stuff. And people riding cars, everyone's afraid of human trafficking. The kids don't hang out. So it's literally at school and you're not at school to socialize, are you? Yeah. So you have to make an effort either way. Yeah. Deb, what about the parents who are in that? I've, I've got one final question for you, and then I don't want to keep you too long. We'll wrap it up. But what about the parents who are in that can't situation like you were? And, and if you've got kids in the public school, as you mentioned, there's some danger to making yourself known to the school board as a, as a troublemaker parent. Or, and so what do you suggest to those parents who have kids in the public school and it's not an option to take them out? Right. So first things first is get to know the situation on the ground with your individual kid. So if they're using a Chromebook, you need access to that. If you don't already have it and don't take no for an answer, don't take no for an answer from your child or the school, they, that if that d device is coming home and in your child's possession all day, you need to see what they're doing on it. And you have a right to don't let anyone tell you that you don't. You need a login and you need to look at it every single day. Go, you, if you have to go to the school and make all nice and nice, be like, I really want to be more involved in my child's education, help them do their homework and stuff. And you get in there and every day look over the lessons that they did in the class. If it's stored in like a Google classroom or a canvas, some of them will be turned in and you can't see it. So you might have to ask your, stu your student like, well, what did you do today? What did you learn today? Okay. And see what they tell you. Um, but get be hands-on about that Chromebook because they're not bringing home textbooks anymore and notebooks like they used to be. I mean, sometimes they are. And you, if they are, look at them, read them, not every page, but skim through them. Look at what kind of worldview is being shown, what's missing, what's dominant, you know, see what kind of words you see. Familiarize yourself with your, your school's um, discipline policy, equity policy, privacy policy. Write yourself up a note for the school that says, I'm officially opting my child out of any and all surveys, SEL, you know, social emotional learning surveys, or any kind of surveys in any class, like any survey you want to do with my child, I am opting out. If you need me to fill out a survey or you need my child to fill out a survey, you may send me a copy of the survey and we, I will look it over. And if I approve, they can fill it out, but only then. Mm -hmm. And then there's a paper trail. 
they will likely push back. They may even lie to you and say, well, we'll lose our accreditation. We can't, we, your child will have to do it or they won't get a good grade. Um, call them out on it and say, yeah, that that's not true. You can't show me where in the law it says that because I don't, I I'm the parent and I, this is private information. This is personal information. It's like, we're just asking whether they like gifts and whether they, what's their favorite toy. And if they have this is like, you know, who, who's, who they can talk to at home. And you're like, I don't care. This isn't teaching them math, science, English, social studies. You are collecting data and you're collecting data about my child's personality and likes mm -hmm. and dislikes. And I don't want you to have it. So the answer is no. So you need to write that down and get that in there and keep a copy and then be prepared to push back. You can do it pleasantly and just say, no, I'm sorry that, no, that's not happening. And then you tell your child. And even if your child is young, you just say, anytime somebody's asking you questions about like just you and home and stuff like that, you don't have to do that. And if the teacher tells you you do, that's a mistake. Mommy already told them you don't have to do it. Or daddy already told them you don't have to do it. Don't do it. So inform your kid so that your mm -hmm. kid can stick up for themselves. Um, so you're going to have to start early with developing boundaries for your child. They're going to need to know it's okay. Like, don't talk to strangers. The teacher's a stranger. The social worker in the school is a stranger. The DEI director is a stranger. They're all strangers. You don't know. They're barely kind of knows. Okay? So you need to let them know that you're in school because you need to go to school because the we I don't, mommy doesn't have a choice or daddy doesn't have a choice. And so you're there, but you're there to learn for you. And the things you're there to learn are reading and this and that and the other. Anything else, I will not be mad at you if you don't do the work. You just come home and tell me what happened and I'll take care of it. Okay? So you let them know that. Um, most parents go, listen to the teacher and do what they say. No, you have to take a different approach. Then the other, the other thing I would do is go to school board meetings, take notes. There's no point really in you or watch them when they come on video, but there's no point in you going and speaking because we've seen what happens with that and you get on their radar. And especially if you're a single parent, you're more vulnerable. So instead document what their priorities are, what they talked about, how they treated parents, record it like on your phone for yourself. So you own the footage. So you have like, you start to have a trail and um, that way you're prepared to support the right candidates for like state legislature, city council, things where they might have more power. Okay. To do something. Then the last thing is go through the library at the school, ask to go visit the school, walk through the library, see what they have prominently displayed. What kind of books are there? There'll be probably books that you really don't want your kids having access to. And so then your next step after that is to go to the teacher and nicely, politely establish a relationship with the teachers. If it's one or two or three or however many say, you know, I just want to let you know that, um, I know my child really, really well. And there are some books that I've noticed in the library that I'd really prefer that they not read and they not have access to and record the conversation like in your pocket or something and just let them know that, you know, I really, this is, it's not, it's not a request. This is a, this is me telling you I don't want my kid reading genderqueer and I don't mm -hmm. want them reading this, whatever it is, okay? And if you're going to be reading things like this in the classroom, I'd appreciate a heads up so that my child will not be there that day. Yeah. You have to assert yourself. And if they say, why? Guess what? You have freedom of speech and parental rights. You can say, you know, it conflicts with our religion. And I'm asserting my right, my First Amendment rights to, um, you know, reinforce that for my child and it's conflicts with my religion. So we will be taking a day off that day or whatever. She'll be late, whatever's mm -hmm. going to happen. And realize you, you want to do it to the rest of the class, but my kid will not be there. So you just have to start taking a less deferential, a, you know, not antagonistic, just a more assertive ownership role over this education. And you can't drop the ball. You can't let a day go by. And that 
note that you sent about the surveys, write another one about counseling. Mm -hmm. I do not give consent for my child to receive any health care or mental health services from the school period signed your name. Wow. That's so important. It's I hadn't just on thought paper. about that. Yeah. It's in writing now. So, you know, otherwise, and check your state law, because one of the things that got people up in arms in Florida and it, in terms of supporting the bill is that prior to this bill, the default position was you sign, you know, yes, you can administer healthcare to my child with their school. And it was sort of blanket permission in loco parentis that didn't used to be that part of healthcare was psychological, whatever, you know, okay. Yeah. They just kept adding stuff and parents were like, check the box, check the box. So the governor, and this was, I think, a prior piece of legislation, the governor was like, we need to make clear to parents there's the emergency care thing, which you don't even have to give consent for that. We're not going to let your child die. Okay. So like you're, what you're giving consent to now is all the other stuff. Wow. So parents who got, it's a suddenly like beginning of the year, they got a new thing. Like we need you to check this box. And a lot of parents just went and did it. Another guy that I saw on Twitter, who was a lawyer, he said, why this can't just, this is a weird time to renew this. So he read and followed up. And the reason they were asking for it, but not really telling parents why they were asking for it is they were now seeking the consent for all the others that was no longer going to be default. The wow. governor's like, you can't just take that Liberty. You got to let people know, but unless you read the fine print, you think oh, my child, if you read it, it goes, this does not include the emergency care. You're going to get that no matter what they had to by law, put that there, but people don't read it. So you read your, your state policy and your school policy and don't check a box for anything above and beyond emergency, like do or die care. Yeah, absolutely do or die and double check that you understand what that means, what emergency means. It can't mean like they're having an anxiety attack and we're going to rush them over to behavioral health and give them some hormones. So you need to <laughs> write that. You need to write that yeah. in paper, on paper because that is your only legal recourse. If they then do it then you have a case. The problem with a lot of these things is they went and they did these things and they, they fall back on. You didn't read you the, check the box. Yeah. You, you check, check the, the box. box and in loco parentis, we're the parent for the eight hours, the kids with us. So if you, if you are one of those people that's like, I can't, you have now have a second full-time job and it's called being a school administrator, adjunct school administrator for your child anyway, while you are 100% responsible for the outcome, but you have zero authority to change the direction of anything. So what I'm trying to encourage people to do is think how much better your life would be, it might be short-term difficult, but long-term better if along with that accountability comes from authority, real authority. So yeah. that's what I would advise. Deb, thank you so much. You're I so could welcome. talk to you forever. You have so much knowledge and you, you have a good way of, of talking with people. I hope that any parents watching this who are inspired by it, you go check out Deb's channel at uh, The Reason We Learn. And you can find her here on YouTube, also on Locals, also on Substack. Um, also, and Twitter. I'm and Twitter. <laughs> yes, we'll put, we'll put your handle in the description. So everybody go yes. to the description and find Deb. And um, Deb, I want to talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Without a doubt. Yes, for sure. We can do, you know, find out what people are asking you and maybe they have some lingering questions or whatever. They want some more depth or a deep dive and some be happy to be back and answer any questions. I really want parents to see themselves as um, the, the power players. They really are. The, the, the government is trying to make you feel like you're powerless. Don't give in. That's my advice. Cool. Thank you, Deb. Thank you're you guys so for welcome. tuning in. Take care.